0: Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles, from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. It's your programme about money, work and the economy. I'm Sam Fenick Coming up today, you'll hear about the hostile tactics used by some Kenyan loan companies.
0: So three days to the repayment date, they start sending you messages, very uncouth messages, hostile messages, rude messages, reminding you that your loan is due in three days.
1: Could the merger of Disney and Reliance create a media powerhouse big enough to rival Netflix and other streaming networks? And we hear what NVIDIA have in store for the future of AI.
2: I think that this is the iPhone moment
1: of AI. Well, that's coming up here on World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. But first today, US aviation regulators have given Boeing 90 days to come up with a plan to fix safety problems. A panel of experts from the Federal Aviation Administration has reviewed 4,000 Boeing documents, conducted seven surveys and spoken to 250 members of staff. And they've come up with 27 safety recommendations. Now, this follows an investigation into a mid-air blowout on a Boeing jet in January. You'll remember the door of an Alaska Airlines plane blew off. It was later found in the school teacher's backyard. Here's Kim Bartlett. She was on that flight.
3: There was just a really loud boom, which was so startling. And the plane just filled with wind and air. And it's just crazy because that shouldn't happen right you don't you know something's wrong and you don't know what i didn't know where the air was coming from the oxygen mass dropped
1: Well, Tim Atkinson is a former air accident investigator, and he's been poring over the 50-page report for us. And I asked him what he makes of the findings.
4: There isn't too much detail. We're not talking about an analysis at a nut and bolt level of of particular things. We're much more talking about an examination of an organisation, an enormous organisation, a very, very wealthy and powerful organisation, and the people in it and their sub-organisations, and their cultures, and their behaviours, and what their normal looks like, and all of those sorts of things. And the findings really keep coming back to this question of culture. And culture is how we do things around here. It's been clear to me for some time, and and to many others, that the things we've observed about Boeing have had their roots in a drifting culture, in a culture drifting from being a very engineering-led, very expert- culture which was all about doing best to a culture which I think has been more focused on financial results and where best is perceived to be the enemy of good enough. And occasionally, of course, if you work to good enough, you end up not quite achieving it. And I dare say that's what we've seen from time to time, including with appalling fatal consequences.
1: So as you go through this 50-page document, the word the word safety culture comes up a lot. And one of the things that kind of stuck in my head from reading it was that the quote is from the the, the report which suggests that a, there's a disconnect observed between Boeing senior management and other members of the organisation on safety
4: culture. It's certainly my perspective that as the senior management has changed so the organisation has changed beneath them and it's very interesting that the conclusion of this report is not aligned with that. Now, there could be lots of reasons for that, and there isn't information in the report, and I don't have information to comment on them. But if we take it as fact, and I would do so cautiously then it suggests that the focus is moved away from the senior management, the very top level, and to the things beneath them. And therefore, one has to question, well, how were they in control of it? You know, if they were getting everything right, how are those beneath them not getting everything right? And so the list of challenges builds up. It's not just a matter now of looking at an across organisation cultural change, which is clearly necessary. But this report suggests that there's more to it than that. And and it's somewhat perplexing in that regard, I have to say.
1: The report goes on to say that the panel observed inadequate and confusing implementation of the five components of a positive safety culture, inadequate and confusing.
4: Yes, I might argue that that the notion of safety culture is in itself inadequate and confusing. And I would argue that an organisation has a culture and one of the outcomes of that is safety. And when you try to turn that around and develop a safety culture, things become confusing in themselves. And and so I'm unsurprised by that finding. Nonetheless, I think it would be extraordinary to find an organisation of Boeing's size where that wasn't giving rise to confusion. And where one finds confusion, one can always label it inadequate. The big message from this report is that those of us who've thought that Boeing's culture had shifted and had shifted not in a good way were right. Whether I agree with quite how it's being dissected here, I'm not sure.
1: So if you were to put a timeline on how long it will take for this uh, company to change its culture, would you be able to hazard a guess?
4: I can only quote what, what I believe the experts say. And that is that, you know, to achieve a cultural change of this magnitude in an organisation of this magnitude, you know, a decade isn't a bad time span to be considering. Um, a decade, about, 10 years. 10 years, yeah. You know, you've got to change. This is how people behave and people behave as a result of how they think and the, the things that make sense to them. And to change that from the top down or from the bottom up is an enormous task. You've got to move people's normal from their 2024 normal to the normal that you'd like them to have.
1: That was Tim Atkinson. He is an aviation safety inspector speaking to me earlier. Now, Disney and India's Reliance Industries are combining their Indian TV and streaming businesses. Reliance's Viacom 18 will merge with Disney's Star India, in a mega $8.5 billion deal. Now, the merged entity will have 120 TV channels and two streaming platforms. It will rival Japan's Sony and Netflix in a media and entertainment sector set to be worth $100 billion by the end of the decade. Well, joining me now live is Jessica Reef Ulrich. She is the senior media and entertainment analyst at Bank of America Securities. Jessica, thanks for coming on the programme. Who's the winner here, do you think? Disney or Reliance? Well, it's a joint venture and clearly Reliance, which is
5: a very strong company in India, will benefit. But and that's covered by my colleague, Sachin Salgo Ankar. So he was very positive on it. But from a Disney perspective, we think it's extremely beneficial to the company. Um, India, as big a market as it is, is really difficult. And Disney has racked up losses over the years on their sports side. Hotstar has been a problem. It's just consumed management's time and attention. So so combining with two of the biggest media companies in India, um, I think is very beneficial to India and any losses that they have, which are probably modest on a consolidated basis, will go below, below the line because Disney will own uh, just over a third of the combined entity. And why is I Disney,
1: guess, sorry. Just why I was just wondering why has Disney struggled so much to get a foothold into the Indian market?
5: It, it's actually a really complicated market. Um, you know, advertising was very difficult. The sports rights have gone through the roof, so the cricket rights for IPL have just become extremely unprofitable um disney's basic entertainment business store has has done fairly well but they've really missed their projections over the last since they bought it from fox they've missed almost every year it's, it's just been a real drain on them um one thing that this combination does do is it brings uday Shankar back uday ran star tv when it was the most dominant Indian media companies. So it brings a lot of really qualified executives back into one company.
1: I know that um, Disney showed the India World Cup cricket for free in the autumn at the back end of last year um, after failing to win a bid to, to stream the Indian Premier League cricket. They missed out on that, didn't they, to Reliance? Yes. I mean, it's been it's a very competitive market and more competition has come in.
5: Reliance has come in, as you just mentioned. But you know, uh, uh, Netflix has come into the market as well, so they're sort of attacked on on multiple fronts, and it's so it's just been, uh, as I said, it's a little bit complicated. Um, while they did well in, in entertainment, sports was really problematic. So this kind of puts it all in one house, um, and there should be some synergies from the deal. Uh, the vast majority of India, you know, of Disney's India business will go in here, and probably. There was a comment in the press release that other parts of the business can go on as well. It, it just reduces all of the risk or most of the risk and volatility for Disney.
1: Now, I can hear your phone pinging in the background, and I, I know you have a, a bit of a hotline to Bob Iger, who's the boss of Disney. How will he be <laughs> feeling, do you think, right now? Is he messaging you saying, yeah, I'm really happy? Tell everyone I'm really happy.
5: <laughs> yeah. I, look, Bob Iger has done a phenomenal job and, um, you know, it took a while to restructure the company overall since he's back but you know at this point the company's restructured they've restructured operations and it finally feels like they've turned the corner they were very proactive on their last earnings call in terms of the basic business and how they're you know attack it you know their plan of attack to improve all the businesses but they were also pretty aggressive they're going into the gaming business which will take some time but they're, they're, they're looking at growth as opposed to, to being defensive as they were for the last few years.
1: Fascinating. Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on and telling us all about that. We'll go and let you get your uh, messages now, which we can hear we're, we're pinging through as we were talking. Thank you so much for joining us on World Business Report. Now, there's growing concern about the tactics being used by companies offering unsecured loans via mobile phone apps in Kenya, with numerous reports of firms accessing users' personal data to chase them for repayments. The BBC's Hannah McCarthy has this report.
6: I'm here in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, where over 80% of the population access loans and financial services directly on their mobile phones. When users install these apps on their
0: phones, they often hand over large amounts of their personal data, As you're applying for the loan, you allow them to access your contacts, your phone numbers, your messages, and even your calls.
6: I spoke to Erica, who didn't want to use her real name, about how she began taking out mobile loan apps when she lost her job during the COVID-19
0: pandemic. I'm living in the capital city, Nairobi. I have lost my job. I have a daughter in the house. I have a dependent. And you basically have the bills to pay. Erica began
6: taking out an increasing number of mobile loans.
0: So three days to the repayment date, they start sending you messages, very uncouth messages, hostile messages, rude messages, reminding you that your loan is due in three days. If on the repayment date you are yet to pay, they start making incessant calls. You block one number, they call you with another one, another one, messages, and then they start threatening you that they are going to call your contacts.
6: One company called Erica's former HR director.
0: The HR calls me and he's like, got a very disturbing message that you owe some people money and you have refused to pay. And they are claiming you used my name to borrow that money. I assured him I didn't use his name anywhere and those are con people. They're just trying to get money from him and he was okay. However, in the, in, in the following days, I got a lot of calls and concerns from my former workmates. Remember, this is a professional environment. So you are going to do anything possible to repay that money. And that's how you keep borrowing from one app to repay the other. You pray for the world to open up and swallow you. You want to sleep and never wake up. The Kenyan government
6: has brought in new regulations to restrict lenders accessing users' personal information, but it hasn't stopped the many unregulated lenders from continuing to harass people.
0: So I would say the new law is not effective. There are some loopholes, there's so much that needs to be done. But Paul Adams from Innovations for Poverty Action
6: believes that some phone data could allow lending companies to reliably give loans to people who lack a traditional credit history that includes things like credit card payments or mortgages.
7: In countries like Kenya, where maybe individuals don't have such a rich credit history the opportunity to use kind of traditional data is limited. And so there's lots of companies now trying to develop alternative ways to judge an individual's reliability at repaying loans. And some of that information can be on your phone. If you have airtime on your phone that you've reliably top up and you've managed to keep the, the kind of payments going on your phone, that's going to be indicative of somebody who's got a consistent stream of income. And so information like that, can be used as an alternative way to judge someone's reliability.
6: But informed consent is crucial for this model to work.
7: What I would like to see is the users themselves given real agency and choice as to which bits of those data they are willing to hand over in the interests of credit scoring. Because it doesn't need to be that you have to hand over all of your data and your contacts. It can just be a limited set of data.
6: It's clear that there are still plenty
1: of changes to come from
6: Kenya's digital money revolution.
1: That was Hannah McCarthy reporting there for us from Nairobi. The global story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social
7: media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles.
1: Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world but very different ones online. One global story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service.
7: For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a a very dark shadow. This
3: looks like a message.
1: Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service with me, Sam Fennick. Now, artificial intelligence seems to be seeping into our everyday lives, from enhanced internet searches and digital voice assistants to creating music and art. NVIDIA, one of the companies which makes these chips to create AI, now thinks they're going to change the way we shop. Azita Martin is leading NVIDIA's initiatives on artificial intelligence in the industry, developing technology that can generate contact like text, images and other data when prompted. And she thinks this is retail's iPhone moment. She's been speaking to our North America business correspondent, Erin Dalmore.
2: AI enables you to to really have a complete view of the customer and be able to really offer them uh, promotions and products that are personalized and tailored to their needs. And so here's when generative AI comes in. One of my favorite applications for generative AI that a lot of customers are now, a lot of retailers are implementing is what we call a shopping advisor. And the way I describe it is imagine taking the absolute best sales associate that you have in your company and replicating that on your mobile and e-commerce site. So
8: if I'm the customer, do I know that I'm being treated to a personalized AI shopping experience
2: here or, or not? chatbots in the past have not been very smart, right? And what generative AI allows you to do is truly train them, not only with your products, but the characteristics of your product, right? So if I come in, and I say that I'm looking for a, you know, red top for, you know, a, you know, summer party that I'm going through, it, you know, looks at my previous shopping experience and shopping habits it knows that i like certain styles and and not every single red product Mm -hmm. so the products that it recommends to me are tailored towards my preferences and my style and what i bought in the past and how about from the store's point of view because i
8: can see how the personal shopping experience can be attractive to customers how is gen ai helping stores run their businesses in other ways
2: so there's a lot of computer vision technology right now that is being used inside the stores. And that is to give retailers an idea of you know, heat maps, like where are most of the customers spending their time or what is the, the path? So if they go and buy certain things, what's the next place they go to? That allows them to actually optimize merchandising and the layout of the stores. Zeta, have we seen a moment like this before? A lot of publications called it the iPhone moment, right? Uh, I mean, if you look at it, iPhone changed the consumer world, right? We weren't used to having our emails at our fingertips. Uh, you know, photography was a hobby. Now it's, a, it's part of our everyday life. You know, I think that this is the iPhone moment of AI, That was Azita Martin. She is from
1: NVIDIA. Now, like a lunar rocket, inflation has shot up and come back down, but has yet to land safety. Now, that's what the New York Fed President John Williams said on Wednesday. The New York Fed's measure of core inflation was running at an annual rate of 2.3% in December. That was down from... 5.5% 5.5% in June 2022. But as uh, Mr. Williams suggests, it's still a little way off its 2% target. So what's this chatter done to investments? Let's talk now to Susan Schmidt. She is head of public equity at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. Uh, we have had these uh, this chatter come out from Fed officials. There was some yesterday, there's some today. How have the markets reacted to it?
8: Well, the markets are absorbing it all. Remember that the primary... Economic metric that the Fed looks at is coming out tomorrow. So that's the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Measure. And that's what the Fed is really checking and looking at, and it's its gauge of inflation. So investors are waiting for that data to come out tomorrow. The estimates are that it is going to come out at, at not quite 3% level. And remember that the Fed is targeting a 2% annualized level for inflation. So investors are wanting to see that continue to inch down. They think that. You know, the Fed governors are out there chatting about it, talking this up. And that's usually a reminder of the markets to not get too ahead of yourselves. We're going to be patient with this. And the Fed's been consistent in messaging that they want to make sure we're making progress towards that 2% level
1: before they start thinking about changing their stance on rates. So on that chatter, the Boston Fed president, Susan Collins, has said today that inflation needs to cool in more categories before she will support any rate cuts what categories is she referring to? What needs to really start to move?
8: Well, we have seen changes in some categories, but remember that the consumer itself and the consumer spend has remained very hot. So while we've seen you know cooling in some areas, and certainly when she's talking about it, she's also talking about it, ex food, ex energy. We haven't seen a reduction in prices really in, say, services, and that reflects that. Pressure that we continue to see on labor, we still have very high unempo- high employment, low unemployment, and so high wages go with that. So, and we're so that's reduction in prices on services, and that's harder. How, well, how are they going to come down if wages have gone up? Well, that's just it. But remember that inflation is all about change. So what we need to do is see that stabilize. And as we see that stabilize, that rate of change will then hopefully also stop, if we could see it stabilize and flatten out, as long as prices stop increasing, then we might start to see some softening. And also remember that demand supply balance, we start to see things right size. That also Um, we can dovetail, Sam, into a whole point of how AI might help this along.
1: Whoa, now that's (laughs)
8: synergy, isn't (laughs) it? A much bigger topic.
1: We'll talk about that later, hey, Susan. I'm just going to ask you, before you go, would you put your bets on or what would you put your money on when rates might start coming down? When might the Fed start kind of moving towards that uh, lower level?
8: Investors are looking at this and listening to those comments from the Fed. And the comments that you heard, say, Susan Collins speak to today all indicates that rates might start coming down at least at the summer, or the tail end of the summer, later in 24. So later. in 24, but not
1: till the back half. OK, well, thank you very much, Susan Schmidt, for coming on the program. We were talking about spring and now we're talking about the summer. Thanks for coming on and explaining that to us. Now I'm going to take you back more than 25 years.
4: I did not
5: have sexual relations with that woman.
1: Do you remember that? That was, of course, the then President Bill Clinton denying an affair he had with Monica Lewinsky when she was an intern at the White House. Well, over two decades later, Ms. Lewinsky has signed up to promote a sustainable L.A. fashion brand called Reformation in its latest campaign. Now, the campaign is called You've Got the Power and it features Ms. Lewinsky wearing some business suits and encouraging people to vote in the upcoming U.S. election. So why has this particular brand chosen Ms. Lewinsky to promote their clothes. Joining to discuss that is Christina Binkley. She is the LA editor for Vogue Business. So what's the attraction, Christina, of Ms. Lewinsky to this particular brand?
3: You know, know, I I find it actually remarkable and and one of the smarter promotions I've seen in quite a while, given where Monica Lewinsky is today. I mean, we know she lived in ignominy for several decades after that affair that was funny you playing that clip a minute ago it takes by the you way back, it's a, doesn't it? yeah. it's, oh my lord does it ever but think about that uh, when you hear that clip you're going back to a moment when she was considered a, a hussy a slut whatever you know and she survived decades of that me too happened and people another generation two more generations took a new look at Monica Lewinsky and saw a completely different person than they saw back in the Clinton era. And that's a a survivor, a powerful woman. Uh, She's beautiful. So that's great for fashion. And, you know, that all sort of packs a punch in this campaign.
1: And I suppose that the campaign slogan, you've got the power, uh, linking it with the election is also a, a, a good branding, is it?
3: Uh, you know i would say so i think and also let's look this is this is a company that builds itself it's built its brand on sustainability and uh, you know it's its market is you know young women to middle aged i mean i was surprised to learn that monica Lewinsky is uh, just turned 50 i guess or about to um, she you know it's a it's a it's got probably a not MAGA Republican leading following reformation. I'm going to guess that. I, I don't know the demographic demographics of their clients, but it reads to me people who are concerned about climate change. And that tells you something right there. So to, to bring out the vote with a powerful survivor um, seems pretty in brand. Is it risky
1: for brands like a, a fashion brand like this to get, in, get itself involved in politics in this way?
3: Well, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty tiptoeing. It's, it's not like they're, you know, putting out, you know, anti-Trump bumper stickers or something that was quite that obvious. I think what we've, in this day and age, we've taken to sort of, you know, we, we talk about get out the vote, and it's pretty clear which vote we're hoping to get out. Um, and, you know, I'm going to guess that they're hoping to get out more of a Democratic vote, but they're not saying that anywhere. Has it
1: been done before? This kind of link up between a clothing brand and, and this kind of kind of nuanced political um, message. You know, there's
3: a lot of political messaging going on on brands. And you know, even if you look at at, at couture runways like Dior, um, you know, they, they they they're not supporting candidates on Paris runways, but they're they're supporting issues. And climate change is one that comes up a lot. Women's empowerment is another that comes up a lot. Um, And I think that there was a time, you know, even if you go back to 2016 to 17, 18, where brands were really terrified that they would anger one side or the other as though the country was split down the middle. And if you said something pro-blue, then you'd get the 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 red states would be angry with you um, and vice versa. And I think we've seen a little bit of loosening with that. And I, and I, would, I would say also that it's, a, it's posturing, marketing posturing that's going to appeal to Gen Z and millennials.
1: Christina, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about that. That was Christina Binkley. She is the YLA editor for Vogue Business, bringing us to the end of World Business Report for today. Thank you very, very much for listening.